Hello and welcome to this vidcast which is devoted to an outstanding company, Snowflake. Snowflake is supposedly back to a normal situation, between quotes, which I am going to elaborate now. The company is very well known in the data cloud business. It defines itself as data warehouse as a service. You all know software as a service. It's about structuring data warehouses in which you can put all the data. You have a governance of the database, which is absolutely perfect connection. It's programmable and you can build your own marketplace and make a lot of money out of that. The company has a great reputation in the industry and the ecosystem of the company consists in great names and partners. First, in the cloud business, you have Amazon Web Services, obviously, Google, Google Cloud Products, Microsoft, Azure. Ali Cloud is not in the list, probably for problems linked with the nationality of these companies. Now, they have other partners in the ecosystem, for example, audit firms like Deloitte or EY, Accenture, the very well-known firm operating in consulting, information systems, and so on and so forth. IBM, Infosys, HubSpot, the challenger of Salesforce, Standard & Poor's. So the company is working with outstanding company. It was created in 2012, about 11 years ago. And its mission statement, its purpose about cloud database structuring. The company did something great in 2020, going public and raising $3.4 billion. It's the largest ever IPO in the software industry. The company is still growing quite a lot. In 2021, the total revenues were $1.2 billion, and in 2022, it's $2.1 billion. So, so very quickly expanding. And the company in the books is generating losses, but it says we are profitable. There's a kind of paradox in this statement, and I will elaborate a little bit on that later. Now, the stock price is a bit flat, constant, not skyrocketing at all. The market capitalization still is very high, $56 billion the moment I record this vidcast. Compared with sales of 2.1, this is really a high figure. But if we go back to the IPO of the company, we have a very interesting story. It took place in September 2020 at an offered price of $120 per share. The estimates a few months, a few weeks before were in a range 75 to 80. There were even stock options given to key employees of the company at the beginning of the year with exercise prices of about $35 to $40. So 120 is really showing some interesting growth about the value of the company. But now before the opening of the market, there are some transactions at $230. The opening shows a first transaction at $245. It's going to go to a maximum during this first day of listing of 319 to get back a little bit to the closing price, which is 254 this is absolutely outstanding and a little bit abnormal. 
Now, if you look at the evolution of the stock price of Snowflake after the IPO, and you confront that with the NASDAQ evolution, you first observe that the NASDAQ was up and Snowflake was a little bit disappointing after the IPO. Then Snowflake stock price is up and it's going to get to a kind of maximum one year after the listing at $350. Then there will be a stabilization. And then you remember that the NASDAQ went down by one third. Now Snowflake went down by more than 50%. Then Snowflake stock price stabilized at a level of 150 and has been quite stable during the last year. This stability also shows in the calculation of the beta, you remember the systematic risk coefficient, which is a consequence of the sensitivity of your stock price to what happened on the stock market. The beta was quite chaotic when calculated over 12 months. This is quite normal for a company in the tech business shortly after its IPO, then it went down. And if you look at the 24-month beta, which is the one which is a little bit more relevant, it shows some stability, a little bit more than 0.6. No change, no movement in the stock price. In its financial communication, the company shows the evolution of its expenses, profit, cash. The company closes its accounts on the 31st of January. So when the company says full year 2023, for example, it means 11 months of 2022 and one month of 2023. So it's a bit more 2022 than 2023. This is a technical point. No big deal about that. Now, the company shows the evolution of its operating expenses as a percentage to revenues. And it's down. Why? Because of an improved operating leverage. The company says, oh, non-GAAP operating expenses. Then the company shows that this improvement in the operating expenses is transformed into adjusted free cash flow, which is now positive as a percentage to revenues. Two years ago, it was minus 12, then plus 12, and today plus 25%. Non-GAAP again. I will elaborate on this non-GAAP versus GAAP a little bit later in this presentation. And the company says that the reason why it's improving is revenue growth. Revenue growth generates economies of scale. If you have the same fixed cost and larger revenue, the percentage of one against the other is down. We show also a larger customer relationship. We have a customer base retention cost less than acquisition. And this is why the company's profitability and performance is improving. Now, if you actually look quarter after quarter at the evolution of the operating expenses, what do you observe? The first line in a PL as an expense is cost of sales. Cost of sales showed some reduction, decrease as a percentage to revenues as a consequence of economies of scale. But it stabilized about four quarters ago, two years ago. And now it's stable at something like 30% to sales. If you observe sales and marketing expenses, they were representing more than 100% of revenues the day the company was building its customer base. Now it showed some economies of scale, and now it is stable, again, at the level of 40%. If you look at research and development, which is an expense in a P&L and an investment in real life, you observe a kind of economies of scale at the very beginning, then there's a stabilization, and during the last quarters, what did we observe? An increase 
of research and development expenses as a percentage to revenues. And it's a little bit compensated by real economies of scales on general and admin expenses. So these truly indirect costs show some economies of scale, not the rest of the P&L. Now, the company is providing a guidance for 2023, which they named 2024. Of course, product revenue is going to go up to 2.7 billion. But if you take the year-on-year -year revenue growth, it's only 40%. Only is exaggerated, but a few years ago, it was 120, then 106, then 70, then 40. So you understand that there is still significant growth, but the growth rate is lower. The gross profit is stabilizing at the level of 75-76%, non-gap. The operating loss was 38% in 2020. Now it is an operating profit of 6%, non-gap. Non-gap adjusted free cash flow, you remember, minus 12 plus 12 plus 25 and plus 25. There's a kind of stabilization of the free cash flow generation. Now let's have a look at the financial performance of the company, but it's accounting performance as well. If you look at the gap and not the non-gap, this is a regulated information. You understand that the company's revenues are growing, which is good news. We all know that. But the company is not at break-even and far from that. During the last quarters, the operating loss was representing something like 40% to revenues. It's not break-even at all, but these are gap figures. Now, what is the difference between gap and non-gap? The fact that in non-gap calculations, there are a few items which you don't take into account. So the company explains, for example, for research and development, that the gap figures has to be reduced, decreased by stock-based compensation. When you give stock options, restricted stock units to key employees, managers, developers, R&D people, engineers, and so on and so forth, it should be treated and accrued as an expense in the P&L. This is gap. And then the company, like many companies in the tech business, they say it's absolutely not an expense. Another expense which should not be treated as an expense is amortization of acquired intangibles. When you make an acquisition, you acquire goodwill, brands, market share, and some intangibles related, for example, with technology. You don't amortize the goodwill, you don't amortize the brand, but you amortize acquired R&D expenses capitalized in the balance sheet of their company. Now, as they say, it should not be amortized because we don't amortize something whose value is going up. This is why you deduct from the gap expense, the non-gap expense, which are supposedly giving a better picture about the business reality. Now, is it a big figure? If you look at what happened in the company just before the company went public, it distributed plenty of stock options and restricted stock units. The value, the accounting figure is more than $300 million for the pre-IPO and IPO year. If you take the year before, it was less than $80 million. So you understand that there is a dramatic increase. Now, if you look at the evolution of stock-based compensation in dollars and in percentage to revenues, you understand that there is a moment before and a moment after IPO. The quarter the company goes public, the figure is dramatically increasing. And it's dramatically increasing in absolute and relative terms. It's going to go up to 150 per quarter. 
the year the company is getting public. Then it's going to stabilize at 150 million. So the percentage to revenue is going to be down because the revenues are up. And now the percentage is stable at 40% of revenues. And in the meantime, revenues are up. So the figure is, in absolute terms, skyrocketing. So you understand that stock-based compensation is really a very big item in the PL of the company. Now, if you adjust the operating profit as suggested by the company, and you calculate the operating profit excluding the stock-based compensation, you're at break-even. So you make a profit which is absolutely marginal, but at least your operating income is quite stable, close to zero. You don't generate huge losses. Why? Because of SBC. It's even better for the EBITDA, the cash operating profit. The EBITDA is traditionally EBIT plus DA, but you also add up stock-based compensation because it is a non-cash item. Now calculating the figure, you get in 2022, a percentage of revenues, which is 4%. Now you start generating cash operating profit. And if you relate the enterprise value market cap minus cash, market cap plus net financial debt, you get a figure which is 500 times the EBITDA, which is quite high. But now if you relate the enterprise value to the revenues, it is 20 years of revenues, which is a kind of normal between quote situation. It was quite an abnormal situation when the company went public because at that time, the enterprise value was 120 years of revenues. So it's back to more normal multiples. But what do we name normality? The investors are making investments. In the company, when you make an investment, you anticipate a return. If you look at the books of the company, which kind of return are you going to generate? An operating profit divided by capital employed. You can remember it gives you the return on capital employed. How do you improve the EBIT? You reduce the operating expenses. Now, if you look at quarter after quarter, the evolution of the operating expenses, you understand that all in all, it was quite stable as a percentage to revenues. The company says we generated economies of scale. Yes, on general and admin, thanks to which you can fund the increase in R&D as a percentage to revenues. It's normal to increase R&D as a percentage to revenue if you want to accelerate growth, which is slowing down. How do you fund that? How do you finance the increase in R&D? By economies of scale on GNA. But cost of sales and sales and marketing are quite constant. What are the hopes of actually increasing the operating income? This is a very difficult question. Now, there are plenty of forecasts. You give guidance. You say that we are going to leverage our profitability and so on and so forth. It's a forecast. And this kind of normality is very much based on a forecast, which you have to demonstrate now in real life. Even though the potential market is absolutely huge, there is no doubt about that, but you have to transform revenues into profit. And it's not guaranteed. Now, should you trade stock-based compensation as an operating expense? A number of people, even outside the audit industry, they say yes, because it replaces a remuneration. It's a substitution to remuneration. Instead of giving a salary to people, you give them a lower salary, but the complement is stock options, restricted stock units, etc., etc. But there are some people, and I'm part of them, who say, well, there are some problems. 
because it's not exactly a remuneration. It's an alignment of interest between management and key employees of the company and investors. You remember in economics, we named that the agency theory. These people, they don't show a normal and obvious alignment of interest. Now, if you treat stock options as a remuneration, the remuneration is against the investors. If you increase the remuneration, you have less to give to investors. So a remuneration is not an alignment of interest. But SBC is an alignment of interest. So it's a kind of paradox. On a technical point of view, there's a problem of kind of double accounting for SBC, P&L, and cash flow statement. Okay, this is technical. But there's another point which is quite important, which is the impact of vesting. When you say to somebody, you are going to receive stock options over the next four years, if you reach these objectives, milestones, or if you stay in a company, what's happening? You first give the contract to people and then you vest the options one year after the other, for example. But when you vest the option, you vest the option at their current value of the stock. Which means that if between the moment you sign the contract and the moment you are vested, the stock price has increased, the value of the stock option is up, and then the cost of the stock option is higher in a P&L and the company is increasing its losses. So you understand that there is a kind of paradox because the same phenomenon is on the one hand showing the confidence of the investors, on the other hand is digging the hole and increasing the losses. This is a little bit ridiculous. A statement which I never heard or read, and it's my firm conviction. For me, when you give stock options or restricted stock units, you transform managers into investors. Imagine that you receive a salary which is 100 per week. And imagine that you receive only 80. What does it mean? It means that you have accepted to work five days for the company and you have accepted to receive only four days of salaries because with the fifth day of your work, you become an investor and you buy stock options. That's quite an important point because it's an investment for the managers. It's an investment for the key employees. Imagine a company is issuing warrants, options to investors. What happens as a consequence of this issue? You will have more cash on the asset side of the balance sheet and the warrants are going to show in the equity of the balance sheet. It's not an expense. It is an investment. Now, it's not a matter of so much of an alignment of interest. You transform your key people in a company into investors and they buy stock options, giving one day of their time free. So my perception of that is managers are not aligned with investors. Managers are investors. And then you don't treat an investment as a cost in a PL. It should not be, in my modest opinion, in a PL treated as an OPEX. Last but not least, if you want to show the dilution which is going to be generated by attributing these stock options and restricted stock units, it shows as a speculative dilution in a diluted net income. You remember, you communicate your earnings per share based on the actual number of shares outstanding, and you communicate on a diluted net income, dividing earnings attributable to the group divided by the number of shares, including exercise of options, convertible bonds, or whatsoever. 
As a consequence of this dilemma, operating versus non-operating, the companies are communicating on adjusted EBITDA, EBIT, free cash flow, and so on and so forth. The reason why they communicate on these adjusted and non-GAAP items is that it shows the economic reality of the company. So you have the GAAP items, which is about regulated information, and you have to create a kind of double accounting, parallel accounting, which is showing the economic reality of the business, and it's about non-GAAP. You understand the conclusion which derives from these statements? Are you really sure that the concept of general accounting gap, generally accepted accounting principles, do you think that they are really adapted? Do you think that they are really relevant to the entrepreneur's context? And with the statement I propose you, you understand that my opinion is that there should be a little bit of deep dive into the relevance of the rules. Thank you very much.